to, to give you a little bit of background, just uh, before we even get into the message, um, you know that my style of preaching is what they call expository preaching. Um, it's not a style of preaching that a lot of churches do. Now, if you ask most people what is expository preaching, they'll probably say verse by verse. And that's not necessarily true because people can go verse by verse and the preaching is not expository. So what is expository preaching? Expository preaching is essentially being faithful to the passage. It's taking a look at a part of Scripture and exposing, exposing to you what it means in its context. Um, taking into account the historical context and, you know, the grammar and uh, the culture and, and all those kinds of things, uh, the, the knowledge of the languages and all that. So it's really just being faithful to what the passage teaches and what it meant in that time and then trying to help us understand how we can apply it to today. Now, in addition, you know that I go verse by verse. If you haven't figured that out by now, then you're a very slow learner. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we've been in Ephesians for many months now. And the reason why I go verse by verse through these books um, is because I don't want to be someone who just simply picks and chooses the topics that I want to teach. If this is indeed the word of God, we need to treat it like the word of God. If this indeed is the word of God, we should read all of it and not simply just pick and choose what we want to hear or what we think, um, you know, fits um, our needs for that time. So by going through verse by verse, we can address each and every single point that um, Paul makes. Now, it also means that we take more time going through the book, but hopefully by the time we get to the end of Ephesians, you will feel like you know Ephesians better than you've ever known it before. Amen. And you will feel that you can go back and read through it again. And while you're not going to catch everything that I teach, more things will come to mind and you will start to be able to build more upon that knowledge. And I, I can just attest to you that my growing continues, my, my learning continues to grow as I study these texts. And these texts become more and more of a blessing to me in my heart. They become more important in terms of guiding me and how I behave and how I walk the more I learn about them. And so that is my goal for you guys as well. So just, just wanted to share that with you from a pastor's heart, if you will. You know, and I think you guys know I want you to know this, but um, I, I've got to remind myself that I can't make you know everything I know in one hour, right? So, so we're, we're, we're going through this slowly. We're, we're learning together. We're growing together. And for that, we should be thankful, right? It is a blessed opportunity to be able to come into the house of the Lord and to be able to meditate upon his word and how it applies to us, just as to how it applied to the original audience. Now, as we consider our passage, we're continuing on in the book of Ephesians. And we know that over the last few weeks, I've been emphasizing unity. You may remember all the, all the sevenfold realities that Paul had emphasized as the basis for unity. He talked about one body, that we're all one body in Christ. He talked about one spirit, that we have one spirit that's, that's working in all of us, that we have one hope of our calling. We just sung about that this morning. We all look forward to the same hope of Jesus Christ returning. We have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we follow. He is the one that came and died on the cross for us. And then we have one faith. We have one set of truths, meaning we have one set of truths that we believe in in order to be saved. 
If you're to go out and preach the gospel, I would trust that you're not preaching different gospels. That we're all preaching the same gospel that leads people to salvation. We all died the same baptism unto Christ. You know, when we get baptized in the water, it merely just symbolizes the fact that we have all died to our old self and we have risen to newness of life and now are called to walk in a new way. And of course, we are all under one God. One God whose will it was to send his son to die for us. One God whom we were at enmity with, who we were enemies of, we were in rebellion against, who we've been brought together reconciled with by the blood of Jesus Christ. So these are all important elements to our unity. And when we think about, even in the world, we see many examples of this. When you follow sports, the teams that work together the best are the ones who end up winning the championship. You know, when you work within a company, the company whose workers work together the best are the ones who are the most effective. You know, even when we consider this church service, Yes, I'm here preaching, but we also have those who play the instruments, those who sing. Uh, We have people who act as the head usher, you know, who hand out the bulletins. We have people that prepare the bulletins, people who are working in the sound booth. Uh, We have people like Tony, who's here every single, practically every single day, long hours, making sure that this church is what it's supposed to be, that the chairs are in its place, that the carpets are cleaned. You know, and now our nurseries, we have in our nurseries, we have TVs now so that people there in the nursery, they can actually hear and see the service. You know, those kinds of things are are happening and uh, it's easy to overlook. But there are so many pieces that go into what this church is. And same with the deacons. I can go on down the list of deacons and each of the deacons contribute to this church in a very unique but very important way. So we understand that there is unity, but there is also Teamwork that's involved, and that teamwork often involves different roles, right? Um, Different things that we do in order to make things work, in order to make things successful. And that is also the case for us as a church. While we have all these realities that we would say that we're united together with, we also have different abilities and different gifts given to us by God that are meant to help encourage that diversity, That unity, sorry, the diversity of gifts helped to encourage our unity. So you see the sermon this morning, I'm calling this the gifts that Christ provided for unity. And we're going to cover Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. I broke this out into three parts, but I'll tell you right now, most of my time is going to be spent on that second part. And I'll explain why in a moment. But what I'm trying to do this morning is I want you to understand the purpose of Christ's gift in our lives as it is meant to both preserve and promote unity within the body of Christ. The diversity of gifts given to us that is meant to both promote and preserve unity in our lives. Now let's just do a quick review as we often do. We'll look at um, the verses that we've covered already. So Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. We saw this over the last several weeks. Verse 1 is that central command. For us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, that is most important to Paul. And he talks about the humility and the gentleness and the patience, the tolerance for one another that we all must show to one another. And then verse 3, we are to be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit. And then from verses 4 to 5 to 6, we see those seven realities that we're all united on. 
We, we see those seven truths that we all share in common that are more important in uniting us than anyone else outside the church. These truths are the bedrock of our faith. And then from verses 7 to 10, this is the passage that we're going to read this morning, and we'll go ahead and read it now, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, this passage right here, this is one of these passages that I'll confess to you that when I used to read these passages, especially these verses right here, my eyes would kind of gloss over verses 8, 9, and 10 because they didn't quite make sense to me how it fit within the context. Verse 7 is clear enough, and then verse 11, when he goes into the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, that, that part made sense to me, but these three verses, not so much. And so this morning as we go through this, I'm probably going to be spending most of my time on verse 8 because I think that's going to be the key for us. Verse 8 is the prophecy that Paul quotes from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 68. And if we understand that prophecy, we'll understand the rest of these verses here. Now, following these verses here, we have verses 11 through 13. And this is just to say that there are very specific gifts given to the church. Apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and this is all to help build us up together, that we may grow together. And then from verses 14 through 16, this is the result that we are no longer to be like children, but rather, like you see there in verse 15, we are to speak the truth in love as we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And verse 16 talks about how the whole body is basically going to grow and it's going to edify each other and it's going to build each other up the way Christ had intended. So we see these first 16 verses, these are all about unity and how Christ in his sovereign will had chosen to help build us up in that unity. What Christ did for us. And so as we look at the first point, the first point in our outline, and I'm saying that there are three aspects of our gifting that communicates its importance towards unity. The first one is the grace provided in the present. The grace provided in the present. And when we take a look at verse 7, it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, just the fact that verse 7 starts with but... It means that Paul is giving contrast to what he has been saying. Previously, he has been emphasizing what we're united on, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Those are all things that we're united on. Those are all things that we share the same. But now he's providing us some contrast. So he says, but to each one of us, grace was given. Now, he says to each one of us, that means each and every single one of you who have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, this verse applies to you. And he is saying grace has been given to each and every single one of you. Now, when we think about grace, we think about faith. We think about salvation. And that is certainly true. But that's not Paul's point right here, because he says 
Each, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And when he says according to the measure of Christ's gift, that means that a gift has been provided to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says the measure of that gift, it, it means that not all of us have been given the same gift. Not all of us have been given it equally, but all of us have been given a gift. And we'll consider the purpose of that gift in just a moment. But we see here in verse 1 that this applies to all of us. And considering that this passage is about unity, it's not a far-fetched conclusion even at this point to say that the diversity of gifts, the, the unique gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each and every one of you is for preserving the unity of the body of Christ. It is for that purpose. That is why Paul, when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, that means a lot of things. But first and foremost, it means preserving unity, preserving unity within the body. But there's a bigger picture to this that starts with understanding this Old Testament reference that's going to come up in verse 8. And when we read Verse 8, and we understand it, everything else is going to fall into place and make even more sense. Now, this is really kind of a transition. This is transitioning us eventually into verse 11 when he talks about the specific gifts he gave to the church. But let's take a look at this bigger picture. Let's take a look at this quotation from Psalm 8, which references uh, the, one of the Psalms, which is in the Old Testament. And that leads us to our second aspect of our gifting that communicates its importance towards unity. The first was the grace provided in the present. And the second is the prophecy fulfilled from the past. The prophecy fulfilled from the past. As soon as that slide comes up, I think you'll see it. There we go. So there, that's the second point. The prophecy fulfilled from the past. And I'll spend most of my time here. Once we understand this, like I said, I think everything else will fall into place. Starting in verse 8, Paul says this, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, when he starts this off with therefore, he is basically saying that the gift of Christ is connected to this prophecy. In other words, he's saying therefore, or, or it's, it's connected to really this verse, it's, it's, it's connected to this idea that this quotation that's provided here, that when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. But that quote by itself, it's, it can be a little bit difficult to understand how that relates to what we're dealing with here. So this is a quote from Psalm 68. In your Bible, if you have cross-references um, in your Bible, it probably has a little caption or a little footnote that you can look up that says Psalm 68, um, specifically verse 18. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 68, verse 18, and let's compare side by side this verse from Ephesians with that verse from Psalm 68, 18. And you look up there on the screen, we've got Ephesians 4, 8 on one side. We've got Psalm 68, 18 on another side. And you'll see in a moment why I'm doing this. We compare this side by side. We start really in verse 8 when it says, therefore it says. Okay, therefore it says. And then the first line is, when he ascended on high. Now, when you look at Psalm 68, 18, it reads, you have ascended on high. So we see a little bit of a difference here, right? One is addressing God directly as you, and the other one is referring to him in a third person. All right, so that's not a huge difference, but we see a little bit of a difference there. 
And then the next part, Ephesians 4, 8 says, He led captive a host of captives. Whereas Psalm 68, 18 says, You have led captive your captives. Okay, well, there's a little bit of a difference here. Paul says a host of captives. Psalm 68, 18 says your captives. A host of captives just basically saying a lot of captives. All right, still not really a lot of difference here. But when we get to the third part of this, Ephesians 4, 8 says, And he gave gifts to men, whereas Psalm 68, 18 says you have received gifts among men. Do you see the difference? It's a pretty significant difference, isn't it? I mean, in one case, Paul says, gave, and then we look at the psalm and it says, received. Those are two opposite words. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of this? Now, what we don't want to do, and this is going to be a little bit of a lesson to help you when you see Old Testament quotations on how to deal with them, how to kind of understand them. What we don't want to do is we don't want to jump to the wrong conclusions, And by wrong conclusions, let me give you some example of what are some wrong conclusions that you can make about this quotation. First, some people say that, well, Paul made a mistake and remembered the verse incorrectly. There are a lot of people that say that. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that if you believe the scripture is inerrant, you have to reject any possibility that Paul made a mistake in this case. Not to say that Paul was perfect in his life, but as he's moved by the Spirit to write this book, we have to trust in the Lord our God to make sure that this comes out perfectly. Okay, so you want to throw out any kind of notion that Paul made a mistake and he simply quoted it incorrectly. And if you read commentaries, there's a lot of them that say that. The second possibility is that Paul ignored the original meaning and made the verse match his own purposes. He ignored the original meaning and made it match his own purposes. Well, what that is, as I have there in the parentheses, is that that would be a deliberate misinterpretation. So Paul's saying, well, that verse meant that, but I'm going to make it mean this. And all kinds of problems come when we start to do that with the scriptures. So we have to throw that out as a possibility as well. A third possibility is somewhat similar, but not completely the same. And that was Paul was reinterpreting the psalm with new meaning. So in other words, it meant that back then, but now it means something different. And let me give you the new meaning of that. That too, we have to ignore. That is essentially spiritualizing the text. And when you spiritualize the text, in fact, if you do any of these three things so far, whether you allow for human error or you say that there's a deliberate misinterpretation or you start to spiritualize the text, you open up the doors for the Bible basically to say whatever you want it to say. So we have to throw that out. And the final possibility, and there are probably more, but these are the four that I gleaned. The fourth possibility was that Paul was borrowing from Jewish interpretations or other extra-biblical content. Now, the problem with this is that if he's borrowing from interpretations and the interpretation is wrong, then he's he's elevating the interpretation to being equal to Scripture. You see what I'm saying? Or if he's borrowing from extra-biblical content, meaning he's borrowing from books outside the Bible, then he is elevating things outside the Bible as being authoritative. This is the elevation of human wisdom. So these are the wrong kinds of conclusions that we can jump to. When you see these kinds of contradictions or when you see these kinds of um, inconsistencies, I should say, between the text. So what's going on here? Well, if we take a look at 
When we think about the Old Testament and we think about how the writers in the New Testament refer to them, let me just share with you some of these helpful pointers to keep in mind. Um, First of all, when you see the New Testament referring to the Old Testament, those references could be either intended as a direct quote. It could be intended as a direct reference, but not necessarily a direct quote. So, for instance, I can quote John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and so on and so forth. Or I could say that God's love for the world was seen by him sending his son. Okay, when I say that, that's a direct reference to John 3.16, even if it's not a direct quote. So it could be a direct quote, it could be a direct reference, though not an exact quote, or it can be just a paraphrase. If I simply say that um, God's love was expressed through his son, that's more like a paraphrase. Or, you know, a paraphrase can be something that summarizes more than just one verse. It's basically a summary, putting it to into your, your own little words. The second thing to keep in mind is that when there were direct quotes or references, they were often from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. You guys know the original language that the Old Testament was written in? It was Hebrew. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. There's some of it written in Aramaic. But at some point, there, all of it were translated by Jewish scholars into Greek. And so the Greek translation was often quoted, uh, not necessarily quoted from their understanding of the Hebrew. So that's something to keep in mind. And then the third point that I have here is that the New Testament Greek does not use anything equivalent to quotation marks. And this is important. Why is this important? Because when you read a newspaper article, you know, like let's say you're trying to get caught up with the impeachment hearings, right? And you want to find out the latest quotes from the people in the House or the people in the Senate or someone that's representing Donald Trump. You know, you're going to read articles, and when you see a quote, an open and closed quote, what you're expecting to see is an exact representation of what was said, right? Okay. In the Greek, there was no quotes. There was no way for you to know whether something was intended as an exact quote or if it was just a paraphrase or a direct reference. It's just like I said, if I said, if I said to you, the Bible says that God's love was expressed by sending his son. You guys know what verse I'm talking about, but you guys understand that that's not a direct quote. But you understand that because you know the the scriptures. And so you you have to realize that when you when you see the English and it has quotes like it does here in Ephesians four, it has the quotes and it puts, you know, the reference in all capital letters. That's really for us. The interpreters did that to make it easier for us to understand. But it may actually not be an exact quote or intended to be an exact quote. Now, there's two more points I want to bring to your attention. Thus, there is no grammatical way of knowing whether a reference was a direct quote or a paraphrase. So just because you see an Old Testament reference show up in your English, remember that grammatically there is no way for the translators to know just by looking at it whether it was intended as an exact quote or just a reference or a paraphrase. The English translators will go ahead and employ quotes in all caps to indicate where they think a quotation is occurring. My main point is this. Don't place restrictions on the text based upon our expectations today. Let me say that again. Don't place restrictions on the text based upon our expectations today. We, we place a lot of value in making sure a quote is stated exactly as it was stated. And sometimes we'll hear people paraphrase something and it's just and we expect that not to be in quotes. So there's a certain precision that we expect that did not exist in that culture in that day. 
So don't put those expectations there. So let's look again at Ephesians 4.8 side by side with Psalm 68.18. And this time you'll see a little yellow box around the first two parts of that quotation. And what I'm saying is that those first two parts, that's a direct reference. Okay, that is a direct reference. It is very clear that Paul, in those first two parts, he is referring to Psalm 68.18. But what I'm saying about the third part is this. The third part is not a direct reference. The third part is a paraphrase of something else in Psalm 68. It is a paraphrase of something else in Psalm 68. So the question is, okay, well, what is he paraphrasing, right? Well, what, what's coming out of Psalm 68 that leads him to say this? Well, if we were to read through Psalm 68, which we did this morning, I read through the first 20 verses and then the last three verses. We're not going to look at it all in detail here, but these are just some things that we would pull out of Psalm 68. Um, you don't have to know all of these bullet points. You don't have to memorize this. But Psalm 68, if you were to read through this, you would see that God gave his presence to his peoples. He gave protection to widows. He gave freedom to prisoners. He gave rain and provided for the needy. He gave victory in war and the spoils of war. And there's much more. I mean, that could be an exercise on your own time if you want to study Psalm 68 and understand all the blessings that the Lord gave, that God gave to his people. There was much that was given. But none of these blessings use the word gave, that he gave something. But when we get to the end of Psalm 68, we do see the word give show up. And that's the next verse, and I included it in the reading this morning. God did give something to his people. In Psalm 68, verse 35, and this was the very last verse of that psalm, the very last verse of that psalm. The psalm reads this, O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary, the God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. So he gives strength and power to the people. And what I'm saying is that the, that the gifts that, that God gave to men that Paul is referring to, I believe, includes at least in large part this strength and power given to the people. But that leads to the question, what is this strength and power? What is this strength and power? Well, it might help to understand that Paul has emphasized the power of God as we've been going through Ephesians. As we have read through Ephesians, he has emphasized over and over the power of God. Let's take a look at Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. And I just paraphrase a little bit there. I say Paul prayed for the Ephesians to what? To know, and this is the quote, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? That was, a, that was the first prayer mentioned right in chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, Paul prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then not only that, but at the very end of chapter 3, he starts a doxology. And he ends chapter 3 with praise to God, a doxology proclaiming of God. He describes God like this in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So we see in those first three chapters in Ephesians, there has been an underlying theme of the power of God at work. Paul wants to emphasize this power of God. 
He prays that you would know this power of God. He prays that you would know it so that you can adequately adequately utilize it in your lives. Now, the question, what do we mean by this power? What is the purpose of this power? What is this power and what is the purpose of it? Well, let's look again at our slide. Once again, Ephesians 4, 8 and read it again. And you see more boxes there. I'm making some connections here, but starting in seven. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Now, what I'm saying is that those gifts fall in line with what Paul wants you to know and to have Use of, which is the strength and power of God. And so what I'm saying is that one of the ways, one of the key ways that Jesus Christ gives you strength and power is first by giving you the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember in the book of John, when he's up in the upper room with his disciples, one of the things that he told his disciples, I am going away, but I'm going to send to you another helper. And who is that helper? Holy Spirit. So he gave us the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, we receive our spiritual gifts. So that strength and power that we saw in Psalm 68, those are the gifts that I believe is intended to be conveyed, that is given to us through these gifts. And when, when Paul talks about the power that has worked within you, it's the power to do God's will. It's not the, the power to do signs and wonders from the skies. It's not the power to do supernatural healing or, or some sort of miracles of that nature. It is the power to do God's will, which is clear in this context. It's for us to preserve unity within the body. It is to preserve unity. So that gift that Jesus Christ gives you is the strength and power for you to do his will within the body of Christ today. And that is a wonderful blessing. That is a huge blessing. So verse 8, when Paul makes this quote and he paraphrases, he gave gifts to men. This is in reference to the gift that Christ gave. This is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy coming right out of Psalm 68. That he has given us strength and power through these gifts. And remember, like I said, these gifts are for unity. But now that we understand this verse... Let's go ahead and look at the third and final aspect of our gifting that communicates its importance towards unity. And then after that, we'll think through some application principles here. The first two points, the first was the grace provided in the present. Grace provided to us, not just through our salvation, but through our gifts. And then the second was the prophecy fulfilled from the past. And now the third, the purpose accomplished in the future. The purpose accomplished in the future. And I realize that accomplished is in the past tense. And I'm saying it's in the future. I'm saying that because it's absolutely certain. But the purpose accomplished in the future. Looking at verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now what, what is Paul doing here? Why, why is he saying this? Because if you were to read through Psalm 68. Now, The Psalms, there are many Psalms, there's 150 Psalms total, and some of them are very clearly Messianic Psalms. They are prophesying about the Messiah. But if you were to read through Psalm 68, you wouldn't see any reference to Messiah or Son of David, you know, know, or, or God's anointed king. You wouldn't see any of those references. What you see, you see God referred to as God, 
or, or, or Lord. You remember the capital L with the lowercase O-R-D, meaning Adonai or just Lord or Master? Or you see it in all capital L and O and R and D, which means Yahweh. You see those references in Psalm 68. And what Paul is trying to make the point here, and this is very important, and this is part of this kind of this whole concept of progressive revelation. When I mean progressive revelation, it means we don't know everything all at one time. God revealed his plan in phases, in stages, as over, over a period of time to where we are now, where we have the entire scriptures. But at that time when Psalm 68 was written and people would read it, it was clear that God was acting. But what Paul is making clear here is that God, as being referenced in Psalm 68, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says this, he focuses on the word ascended. Look at verse 9 again. This expression that he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also had descended? Because if Jesus Christ existed from the beginning, and he did, we know that from John 1.1, right? John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we know he existed from the beginning. He existed on high with God. And you can't get any higher than God, amen? You can't get any higher. So for this passage to say that he ascended, it means that he first did what? He descended. And that's what Paul is saying. The fact that this psalm says he ascended implies that he first must have descended. And he not only descended, he didn't simply descend into a lower level of heaven. He didn't simply just descend into our skies. He didn't simply de- to descend and just kind of hover above the earth. He didn't even descend just to the earth itself, but he descended to the lower parts of the earth, meaning that he went all the way to the grave. A lot of people look at this and they think this is a reference to hell. It is not a reference to hell. Jesus Christ didn't go to hell. And if you think that the Bible teaches that, I would encourage you to look at those verses again because it doesn't say that anywhere. And sometimes people will refer to, I want to say, 1 Peter 3 and and chapter 3 and chapter 4. But if you look at those verses in your own time, if you want to study those verses, that's not what it says. Jesus did not go down into hell. It says here he descended into the lower parts of the earth, simply meaning that when he died, he was, when, he, when he was crucified, he died and he was buried below the earth. So he descended to the lower parts of the earth. So this is the person who ascended. Paul is making very clear that that psalm, that psalm that Jews would have known well, that psalm of deliverance, that psalm of God's work, that psalm of God's salvation wasn't about God the Father, but God the Son, Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 10. Verse 10 where we read, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. When Jesus, after Jesus was tried and crucified and died and was buried, then he was resurrected. And then what happened after he was resurrected? He came and appeared to the apostles. And at the start of Acts chapter one, what happened to Jesus Christ? Where did he go? Yeah, he ascended up into heaven. So ascended, we understand he ascended up into heaven. But this ascension, when we talk about the ascension of Christ, I want you to think in terms of this, that he didn't simply ascend into heaven. He did that for sure. But he ascended above everyone, even those in the heavenly realms. His ascension was all the way to the top 
Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He ascended all the way to the right hand of God the Father. And he is sitting at the right hand and he is ruling over all the heavens and the and the earth alongside with God the Father. So his ascension is all the way to the highest level. That's why even before the giving the great commission at the end of Matthew, he says, all authority has been given to me on earth and in heaven. He has all authority. He is at the highest position. This verse here in verse 10, this is essentially showing us that Jesus Christ is sovereign. He has full authority, but he also has full control. Because at the end of that part, he says he, he ascended far above all the heavens. For what purpose? That he might fill all things. This is another way of saying that Jesus Christ will accomplish his purposes. He ascended all the way to the top. He ascended all the way to the right hand. He ascended all the way to the point where he was the sovereign ruler over all of creation so that he would ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. He will ensure that his will will come to pass as well. And his will for us as the church is to be able to do his work while he is in heaven while we're here on earth. And that starts first and foremost with living in unity with one another in the body of Christ. You see, those prior verses that we had covered, the, the, the one baptism and the one faith and the one Lord and the, the one body and the one spirit and the one God, all those truths are truths that were united upon, but we each have been given different gifts. We each have been given different gifts in order to help preserve that unity. And so for each one of you here, each one of you here who have put your faith into Jesus Christ, the question is, what is your spiritual gift? Now, it's worth spending a moment talking about spiritual gifts. So we look at what we have here next. And this is the application point as we consider spiritual gifts, because that's what this passage is about. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail here about spiritual gifts. He goes into more detail elsewhere. In fact, when we get to verse 11, he's really only focusing on very specific gifts for the church. But here's some passages I want you to be aware of. Where does Scripture talk about spiritual gifts? Well, there are four places in the New Testament. I'll leave this for your own study if you want to learn more. The first is 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Really, the entire chapter talks about spiritual gifts pretty much, but especially verses 4 through 11 and 28 through 30. The next is Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. We're in there right now. This is the passage that we're looking at right now. Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. We'll look at verses 11 and 12 next week. And then there's Romans 12, 6 through 8. Romans 12, 6 through 8. If you've ever read through the book of Romans, you'll know that the first 11 chapters in Romans is all theology. And then he starts his application. He starts his commands, his exhortations, starts in chapter 12. And then there's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now, these are verses I would encourage you to look at in your own time, but I want you to keep this, keep this in mind. As you look at these verses, none of them have the exact same list of gifts. There are different lists in each passages. But none are intended to be an exhaustive list either. So you're going to see a number of gifts, list, gifts listed, and it's my belief that these are not all the gifts that exist out there. 
You know, these are just some of the gifts each time that the writer decided to mention as examples. They're mentioned as examples. And then let me throw out a couple of question and answers. What do those verses all have in common? Because this is very important. If you look at those verses, and this is, you know, this is the will of God. What do all those verses have in common? What all those verses, all those verses that talk about spiritual gifts, listen very carefully. If you get nothing else, I want you to get this. What all of those verses have in common is that they all emphasize unity and serving one another. Each and every single one of them. The spiritual gifts that are given to you, it's not for you. It's not so that you can get recognition by other people. The gift that is given to you is intended to serve the body of Christ and help preserve unity. It is given, you'll see it, all four passages in very close proximity. You will see that emphasis upon unity and serving one another. And the second question I'm going to put up there, what is the best way to learn your spiritual gift? Because nowadays, and especially in the age of technology and and, um, having um, access to a lot of information. People like to go onto the internet and take little questionnaires. You know, people think that, hey, I can answer all these questions and this, uh, this computer is going to tell me what my spiritual gift is. That's not how it works. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to do that. You can go out there, you can fill out those questionnaires and see what kind of answer pops up. But if you do that and come to me and say, Pastor, I was on the internet and the internet tells me that my gift is this. You know the, um, the state of Missouri, what's their motto? The, the show me state, right? The show me state? Well, my response to you is going to be show me. Okay, because if you go onto the internet or if you just have someone, someone um, give you a bunch of questions and answers and provide you a formulated response on what your gift is, that's not enough to convince me unless you're actually serving and showing how that gift can edify the body of Christ. So really the best way to know what is your spiritual gift is to serve. It's to serve. When I first met Alice, and we were, and I've mentioned this before, but we were an eHarmony couple, right? So we met on eHarmony. It actually works. (laughs) Maybe that was the only way it would have worked. I had to find someone on the internet that that bought into me before they knew too much about me. But... um, (laughs) <clears throat> okay, that's the joke for the day. <laughs> but when I met Alice, you know, she, she was at another church, and she was telling me that she's trying to figure out how to serve within the church. She said, I know there's a need within the nursery, but I'm trying to pray to God and have him reveal to me whether that's where I'm really gifted, where, whether that's where he's going to really lead me. And you know what I told her? Just serve, right? Look, if you know there's a need... Serve in that need. You you know, the more you serve, the more time you spend with the body of Christ, that's when your spiritual gifting will become more evident. Because as you serve in various capacities, as you do different things, the body of Christ will start to confirm to you. You will start to see the ways in which you can edify the body of Christ, and people will start to provide you with feedback. Some of your leaders will start to provide you with feedback. That, you know what, I I think this is your area. Or you're just going to start to feel that, you know what, this is something that I I seem to be getting a lot of good results out of, you you know, and and within the body in terms of encouraging the body and building up the body. And you find that that's going to be where you serve. 
You know, and I know for some of you already, you have served in various capacities and you knew after serving there, oh, that's not my gift. And you know what? That's fine too. But you know what? You're not going to be rebuked by the Lord for serving in an area that you weren't gifted in. You know, if there's a need, sometimes the greatest need is just to have someone show up and be willing to do it. Show up and be willing to do the work that's being asked for. So the best way to learn your spiritual gifts is to simply serve. Now, I do want to say this for those of you who might be here for the first time this morning. If you're here for the first time, we're talking a lot about gifts. But let me make this very clear to you that none of these gifts matter to you. The most important gift for anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is to know, first and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest and most important gift is your salvation. The most important question that anyone can possibly ask in their lives is what happens to me after this life is over? The book of Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And what we learn from the Bible, what we learn in terms of the truth about who we are, that we were all sinners, is that when we all go before God in judgment, none of us will be able to stand on our own works. None of us will be able to stand on account of our own goodness because God's standard is absolute perfection. He is absolutely just. He is perfectly holy. He is good in all his ways. And if you have committed even one sin, the book of James says even one infraction, you are guilty of the entire law. And so the only way, the only way that your soul could be preserved for eternity in heaven is to first and foremost recognize that Jesus Christ is not just one of many spiritual leaders. He is not just one way to get to heaven. He is not simply just one way. He is the only way. Only through Jesus Christ can you find salvation. Not through any other religion, not through any other spiritual leader, not through any works that you can do. Jesus Christ, when he came, he came in order to die and pay the price for our sins. And he and only he could have done that. And so if you're here this morning, if you're in that position, I would urge you to put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith into him and repent of your sins. That means to turn away from your sins. You confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make that commitment to make him your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sins and to follow him. It is not by your works that you are saved. It is by the death of Jesus Christ and your faith in him. Do that today. And if if you are in that position, I would encourage you to talk to one of us, talk to myself, talk to one of the deacons. Um, Deacon and your wives, can you please stand up for a moment? These are all servants of the church. Thank you very much. These are all servants of the church, um, good and godly men and women. Um, You can talk to myself or one of those that stood up and uh, be sure to talk to one of us. Let us pray over you. Let us make sure that uh, you understand um, what you heard and and just help guide you in the way that you need to go. But essentially, it's, it's this simple. You repent of your sins and you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But please do not leave without talking to one of us. Now, for the rest of us, I hope that this has been an encouragement. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you to consider what your spiritual gift is. Because 
Paul, in this verse, said to each and every one of us was given a gift according to the measure of Christ, that according to the measure of Christ's gift, as he determined to give to us. And if you don't know your gift, it may be because you just haven't been serving. If you have been serving and you don't know your gift, I would say, you know what, just keep serving. You know, because the the Bible here just mentions the gifts. It doesn't say that you need to spend all this time trying to figure out what is the gift, but it does say that we should serve one another and to love one another. Those gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you, they will become evident in time. And we just hope and pray that as we all consider our spiritual gifts, that we would use it in the purpose that Christ had intended us, which is to support one another, to love one another, to continue to grow in Christ, recognizing that this is God and God the Son's will for us in Christ Jesus, that we grow continually as a body of Christ. We are the body, and we are to accomplish his will through these means. Let us pray.